Good morning, all. It's just always such a pleasure and privilege to get to see all your beautiful faces. Thank you for that meditation. I have not, I didn't know my gardens had been renovated. Now I'm eager to, to get there. And Matt, Matt and I were talking beforehand. He was our musician when I spoke before, so we figure we must be a team now. We're thinking about taking it on their own. <laughs> And Beth, thank you for it wherever you went, your graceful hosting today. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about the space between, continuing our transcend and include theme. I'd like to introduce it by um, pulling from uh, a phrase from 12-step groups, uh, something they call the three A's, which is awareness, acceptance, and action. So awareness, you know, is when we're, we first hear an announcement where we come into someplace new or maybe we have an insight about the dysfunction in our family, whatever it is that we've, we've got awareness, there's feelings that come up. And then our tendency, right, especially if those feelings are uncomfortable, is rush to action. How can we fix this problem? How can we get rid of these uncomfortable feelings? How can we move forward? Action's valuable, but what the three A's propose is that there is a gap between, as Deepak Chopra is fond of saying, that we take time in between just to sit with it just to be with it, just to accept what, again, in the 12-step groups, they call accepting life on life's terms. Doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you're not going to take any action to change it. It just means I am accepting the reality of this situation, and I am sitting for a little while in the tension or whatever that is in between. I loved in one of your songs that also talked about um, a deep dive. So that can be, you know, another way to think, okay, I'm, I'm not just going to keep swimming here, right? I'm going to take a, take a deep dive here and give a little, a little reflection to, to what all the ingredients are here. So I'm going to start with the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert uh, as an archetypal story um, because it's a story that, that most, if not all of us, are familiar with. Um, Kent is our resident scholar, so if you have questions about the, the factual basis of it or the archaeology, I... I did a little deep dive into that and decided there was no way I was touching that, especially when he might be here. <laughs> so we're going to stick with the symbolism and the archetype of the story. So um, I, I'm sure most of you remember this, but the parts I want to touch on is that the Israelites were eager to go, right? This was something that they were choosing. Things had gotten a little uncomfortable in Egypt, what with the plagues and the firstborn sons being struck down, including of the Pharaoh, wasn't just a real comfortable environment anymore. So they wanted to get out of Dodge. Um, right away, there's some obstacles, right? Come up on the Red Sea, 
how are we going to get? And then they realize, you know, hot on their heels are, are the Egyptians coming after them, change their mind, want their slaves back. Miraculously, the Red Sea parts, first big obstacle out of the way, things settle down, and some questions start to surface. Simple things like, what in the heck are we going to eat out here? <laughs> There's nothing but sand and sun. And poof, another miracle, daily manna. Now, I shared before about my very religious upbringing, and I've heard every verse of the Bible. I figured one time, I think at least five times, we read a chapter from the Bible every single night, and we read um, several chapters at Sunday dinner. But I couldn't remember what the heck manna was, except that it kind of rained down from the heavens like dew in the night. So I did, uh, I am going to share this little bit of research. So from the book of Numbers 11, the manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. So not fast food, right? They still had to work with this. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. Didn't say it was made with olive oil, <laughs> just said it kind of tasted like it. It Something like resin like this, uh, I'd be complaining after a few days <laughs> of eating this also, right? But the point is, it was basic sustenance, right? The next question is, how do we know where we're going here, right? No GPS. And miraculously, a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night to lead the way, which worked really, really well for 40 long <laughs> years. <laughs> uh, I wonder what they would think of our GPS today. So people are getting a little unhappy, right? And then Moses gets a little unhappy. So I'm going to go back to the book of Numbers. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, which happens a lot in the Torah. <laughs> and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised in an oath to their ancestors? If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. So basically he was saying, just kill me now. <laughs> I do not want this responsibility. Now I have to say, I've moved a few times in my life and uh, just did recently. So yesterday I stopped and counted, I have moved 22 times in less than 40 years. So I sympathize <laughs> with, with the Israelites in this story and with Moses. There have been times where I wanted to say to the powers that be, to life, hey, what the heck? Like, I think I said last time, 
I spoke that I'm a pioneer, not a settler, but I realized yesterday I'm a nomad. I'm not a pioneer. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll find my forever home. I have to interject here just because it's one of the best dad jokes I've ever heard, and it relates to, to being angry and complaining. What do you get when you cross an angry sheep and an angry cow? Two animals in a bad mood. <laughs> that was especially for you, Iron. <laughs> so then, next stage of the story, Mount Sinai. There's a golden calf there, right? That ties in. Moses goes up and gets the small tablets, some basic rules. Um, I think he's there 40 days at that point, over and over and over again, 40 days. I think this was 40 days into the wandering in the desert. He goes up, he comes back, they've made a golden calf, probably thinking he's abandoned them at this point, right? And so they're going to pray to whoever or whatever they think might give them some, some support here. Uh, he gets mad, breaks them, everybody makes up, he goes back up, gets the tablets again, and then over the next 30 eight years, I believe, um, supposedly gets the whole of the Torah, the first five books um, of the Hanuk or the um, Old Testament, as we call it. So what's the point of me telling this story? It's that I can relate to that feeling of getting to the next thing, right? The new job, the next move, the the vacation that's coming up, right? But we don't often, at least I don't anticipate, that it's going to require some wandering in the desert for us, right? You start a new job, and at first you're excited, everybody's happy to be there, and then your brain turns to mush as you get all this new information until some new neural pathways can be laid down and you start to get a rhythm in that new job. In anything, anything new, any transition, there's almost always uh, an often unanticipated time of wandering. And like the Israelites, we often want to cling to what we know, to what's familiar, to what worked before. But they had to hit their bottom, right, to become willing to change their identity, their rules, their ways of being, their ways of believing, to come into a new way of being before they could get to the promised land. And the last point I want to pull from that story is that Moses saw the promised land, but Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. And it says that the previous generation had passed and that it was the next generation that actually went into the promised land. So I just want to um, plant this seed about this um, idea, especially as we're going through our transition, about keeping an eye toward not just our own immediate needs, but toward the people who are new to our community, to the people who will come after us. In our pre-talk this morning, I shared this 
um, idea of not pulling up the ladder behind you, you know, but leaving it there. But um, I think it was Beth had what I thought was, was an even better one, which was about being in a relay race and passing the baton and that we don't always know who's coming behind us, um, but that we, we just see that we are part of this ongoing process and keep that in mind and what their needs are. Then, I'd like to talk a little bit more about sitting with it. <laughs> um, one of my favorite musicals is called Quilters. Um, have any of you, did any of you see it? It was popular during the 80s and then early 90s. Um, beautiful musical based on the diaries and letters of American pioneer women, and then each story is tied to a quilting block. And some of them they call shadow blocks for the, the, the heavier stories in the musical. So the one I want to share, um, the woman's name was Jane, and she was a wife and a mother of small children on the prairie. And as she recounts later, one day um, she hears a knock at her door. Her husband has been out gone for a couple days. And there are two men there from the railroad who have come to tell her that her husband was struck by a train and has, has died. As she writes, they brought him home to me in a bushel basket. And that they didn't know why he hadn't heard the train coming, whether he was you know, maybe delirious from the heat or something or had passed out and then been hit by the train. But in her shock, all she can do is sit down in a rocking chair and stare out the window day after day after day. Her mother comes to help with small the small children and the garden and the house and watches her daughter <laughs> helplessly watches her rock and not function and not respond but finally she has an idea the mom she brings to Jane her piecing basket it has little um, cut pieces for her her quilt and Jane writes I didn't know what to do, but my hands did. They picked up one piece and another and pieced them together and another and another. In three months, the quilt was done and my eyes had come clear. Just oh, love that. My eyes had come clear. Not from someone saying, get over it, you've got children to take care of. Not from someone saying, maybe you need an antidepressant. I'm not denying that those are helpful sometimes. But I feel like we don't have enough space and time in our society to grieve, whether it's the death of a loved one, or whether it's losing a job, or any other transition, getting used to being a new parent, losing a loved one in some other way. 
my favorite poet, David White. Um, I started a, a virtual class last Sunday um, with him that's uh, partly about um, like four people who write poetry. And at the Q&A part, at the end of it, somebody said, you know, what is the most common mistake you see among novice writers? And he said, it's that they don't sit with the idea long enough. They don't let it germinate or incubate. That as soon as they have an idea, they start writing, and then they figure it out as they're going along writing. But he said, let it sit. And then he talked about the pandemic, which we also discussed a little in the pre-talk, that during the pandemic, he did not write at all. He just enjoyed the time. And of course, you know, that's a luxury in many ways that, you know, most of us don't have. But he said, I took the time to be fully present with my family, with my home, with my garden. And he said, and at the end of that time, I wrote a full book of poetry that had been germinated. So he was working during that time, but in, in a very different way. So I'd like to do the second part of our reading, the part at the bottom, which is from um, a poem of his called Everything is Waiting for You. And I just love the way he, in the Celtic tradition, like uh, John Donahue, the way he animates um, everyday things in our lives. Um, and, you know, kind of like the quilting basket, how he, he makes it something that interacts with us and supports us. He says, the stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Reminds me a lot of um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the way he talks about mindfulness and hearing like bells or sounds as invitations or reminders to return to mindfulness. So a little bit more about life is what happens in everyday transitions. So we've touched on a, a few of them moving losing loved ones, work. Another one can be a, just going into a new stage of life, right? Um, Joseph Campbell has this, this um, writing from The Power of Myth where he says, the problem in middle life when the body has reached its climax of power and begins to decline is to identify yourself not with the body, which is falling away, but with the consciousness of which it is a vehicle. This is something I learned from myths. What am I? Am I the bulb that carries the light, or am I the light of which the bulb is a vehicle? Good food for thought there. I'd like to share a story um, from an early transition in my life, not because I think I'm unique 
or remarkable, but because it was probably the, the first like big lesson I had in my life that, as John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, <laughs> that, that things don't always go according to plan, and that sometimes we end up in the desert. So just a few short years ago, I was a very skinny, very bright-eyed 22-year-old who was eager to take on the world. I had been very successful in college. I'd gotten a degree in music therapy and done an internship. My professors all thought I was going to be great at it. And I was engaged to a guy um, a few years older than me who was working as an engineer for Texas Instruments in Dallas. And we were feeling probably overly confident because we had done three years of this relationship long distance between Dallas, Texas and Terre Haute, Indiana. So we felt like, man, we did this, we're to the good part, now we get to be together. And my plan was I'm going to work for a year while I plan our wedding. I had been unofficially accepted into the graduate program at SMU. Um, I was going to have a few kids and have a great career. Had it all mapped out, right? Plot twist. So <laughs> I got there, and I could not find a music therapy job to save my life or my checkbook. It turned out that even though there were 250 music therapy jobs in the Dallas area, that there were also three schools that had graduate uh, master's degrees or doctoral degrees in music therapy, and I was competing against people that had advanced degrees and many years of experience. So I ended up working for a temp agency and became an expert at photocopying, filing, sorting mail, and answering multi-line phones, just what I'd gone to college for four years to do. I was lonely. I had never, outside of college, which was uh, just over an hour from where I'd grown up, I had never been that alone. I realized that our friends were actually his friends, not mine. Um, just It felt like I was hitting stop signs everywhere I went, and I literally did run into another car. I rear-ended somebody. Uh, less than a month later, I got T-boned as I was coming out of a driveway, and my car decided that would be a good time to stall and die and let me know it had a problem. And so I see lights of three lanes of traffic <laughs> bearing down on me, and I thought, hopefully I wake up in a hospital. <laughs> Fortunately, all of them stopped except for one car, and he did hit his brake shortly before he hit me. But there I was, my neck was killing me. I had to borrow money from my grandmother to fix the car so I could keep going to my temp job. And worst of all, heartbreakingly, I also felt lonely because my fiance was not only working incredibly long hours, which, which I had known ahead of time, but the drinking that was a normal part of our visits, which were usually at friends' weddings or vacations, camping in Alaska, you know, doing fun, non-everyday things, 
it turned out it really was part of his everyday life. When he wasn't working hard, he was playing hard. And I loved that fun part of him that kind of balanced out my over-seriousness at times. But I was desperate for emotional support at that point, and the well was dry. So I had to face the fact that this grand moment and event in my life that I had been moving toward for a few years was not working out. I was depressed. I was crying the second I got in my car after work. I gained about 30 pounds, which I probably needed to do at that point, but I I couldn't sleep. I just, I didn't know what was going to happen with that relationship. I just knew I had to get out for my own mental and physical well-being. So again, I know my story is not unique. That's not the most traumatic thing that's happened to me or to anybody else. But as I said, it left me feeling like what the heck now? <laughs> I had a plan. I went back to Terre Haute where I'd gone to school where there were people who loved me. And like Jane in the musical, the people there held me and supported me. Uh, my music therapy, former music therapy teacher told me I could live with her and do kind of graduate assistant duties for her, do research, assist her with a fieldwork class. The dean of the music department gave me a meal punch card in exchange for accompanying some voice lessons. And little by little by little, I started piecing together a new life. Transitions require of us openness to a new life, to new possibilities, to a new way of being and acceptance that we may not have all of the answers, that our plans may just be temporary precursors to what life has in store for us. So before I um, close and read the rest of the reading today, I'd just like to extend an invitation, maybe a segue into talk back which is for us all to consider not only how can we deepen this practice or remember it in our daily lives and in our, our everyday transitions, but can we apply this in a deeper way to our transition as a community? Can we make some space between awareness and action to grieve, to listen to each other, to give ourselves time to let things come to a conclusion and to let the old ways die, as Lorena McKinnett says in one of her songs, and then to organically let a new way of being come into life. So I'll close with, with the rest of our reading, which is from a, another poem by David White, What I Must Tell Myself. And both of these poems, I hope maybe some of you will take the time, if you're not familiar with them, to read the whole poem for both of these, because these are just excerpts, and they're both so beautiful. 
I know this house and this horizon and this world I have made. I know this silence and the particular treasures and terrors of this belonging. But I cannot know the world to which I am going. I have only this breath and this presence for my wings, and they carry me in my body, whatever I do, from one hushed moment to another. I know my innocence, and I know my unknowing, but for all my successes, I go through life like a blind child who cannot see, arms outstretched, trying to put together a world. And the world works on my behalf, catching me in its arms when I go too far. I don't know what I could have done to have earned such faith. When one thing dies, all things die together and must live again in a different way. When one thing is missing, like a leader, <laughs> everything is missing and must be found again in a new whole. And everything wants to be complete. Everything wants to go home. Thank you.